Welcome to the Counter Vortex with your ranter, Bill Weinberg, ranting at you in the wee hours of March 2nd, 2024, as always from my apartment on Manhattan's Lower East Side, which fortunately is not under aerial bombardment. Amid the more and more horrific news from Gaza, you might have noticed that Israel just had municipal elections this week, this past Tuesday, February 27th, which generally saw gains for the right, especially in Jerusalem, where ultra-Orthodox and far-right religious Zionist parties won a sweeping victory. Now, East Jerusalem, or the Old City, is, as we all know, occupied territory under international law, and sought as the capital of a future Palestinian state by the Palestinian National Movement. And the Palestinian National Council, the legislative body of the Palestine Liberation Organization, PLO, called for a boycott of the elections, as it always does. Now, I absolutely understand the imperative for a boycott of the elections. But it is interesting that this time, for the first time, there was a Palestinian candidate for the Jerusalem City Council a young woman by the name of Santos Alut, who ran on the ticket of a newly formed list called Kol Toshaveha, which translates from the Hebrew as all its residents, meaning Jerusalem should be a city of all its residents, both Jewish and Arab. Her candidacy was opposed by the Palestinian National Council, which said in a statement, quote, the participation of a Palestinian list in the occupation's municipal elections in Jerusalem is a shameless normalization that serves the plans of the occupation, end quote. And I get that. I really do. But I can't help but be enthused by Sandos Alut. Although a Jerusalem resident, she was born in Nazareth, so a Palestinian Arab citizen of Israel by birth. She is a bilingual Hebrew-Arabic educator, teaching children in a bilingual school in Jerusalem, and an activist for Jewish-Arab coexistence. She is one of the few Arab Israelis to have taken the stage at the weekly protest in Tel Aviv against the Bibi Netanyahu government's attempted gutting of the judiciary, a protest campaign which began early last year and persisted for months. Among the few Arab speakers at the protest, she is one of the even fewer who made a point of addressing the protesters in both Hebrew and Arabic. 
Alhud told the Times of Israel in an interview last year, quote, Arab Israelis have mostly stayed away from the protests, partly because demonstrators wave Israeli flags, with which Arab citizens do not identify. But it goes deeper than that. Liberal Jewish Israelis feel that the threat to their democracy began with the judicial overhaul, but Arab Israelis have felt like second-class citizens for far longer than that, end quote. And regarding her candidacy for the city council, she recently told the Jerusalem Post she wanted to address the apartheid conditions in the city, quote, the neglect in eastern neighborhoods. There is often no water. Garbage removal does not take place regularly. There are no organized roads or street lighting and no cultural centers for youth, end quote. So wanting to get what improvement in conditions can be got through existing political channels, rather than holding out interminably for a solution that will bring Jerusalem, or at least East Jerusalem, under Palestinian political control. Among the co-founders of Kol Toshaveha is Avram Berg, a former speaker of the Knesset with the Labor Party some 25 years ago, who now considers himself to be post-Zionist, a position which is gaining ground in Israel, although unfortunately not nearly as rapidly as the rejectionist and annexationist ultra-Zionist position. So, Sandos Alut, I assume, lost. I found no reference to her in the post-election coverage, so I assume she didn't make it. And as stated, it was largely the most reactionary elements that did. But to understand the electoral dilemma in Jerusalem, it is useful to go back to May 2021, when the last lesser but still horrific Israeli bombing campaign in Gaza began, the so-called Operation Guardian of the Walls, which, as you may recall, was immediately preceded by clashes between Palestinians and the Israeli police at the East Jerusalem holy site known to the Jews as the Temple Mount and to Muslims as the Haram al-Sharif, or Noble Sanctuary, also referred to as Al-Aqsa, or the Al-Aqsa Mosque Compound, a site that has entirely too much eschatological significance attached to it by all three of the Abrahamic faiths, but that's another conversation. For weeks leading up to the outbreak of clashes at Al-Aqsa, on May 7th of that year, which in turn led to the Gaza escalation, East Jerusalem had seen nightly protests over the impending eviction of hundreds of Palestinian families in the Sheikh Jarrah district of the old city, some of which were carried out 
some of which are still being contested in the Israeli courts. The eviction orders were issued at the behest of Jewish settler organizations who claim the lands in question were owned by Jews before 1948, when Jordanian authorities settled displaced Palestinians there. The settler organizations purporting to represent the former Jewish owners are invoking Israel's 1970 Law on Legal and Administrative Affairs, which stipulates that Jews who lost their holdings in East Jerusalem in 1948 can reclaim their property. The Israeli courts have repeatedly approved East Jerusalem evictions on this basis, expelling families who have been residing in the properties for generations. And given that, as noted, many of these families were themselves displaced Palestinians from the War of 1948, this constituted a second displacement. And all of this came back in May 2021 amid an impasse concerning the voting rights of Palestinians in East Jerusalem. The Palestinian Authority, or PA, had called in January 2021 for parliamentary elections to be held that May, the first in the occupied territories since 2006. Many were looking hopefully to the vote as an opportunity to end the then 14-year division, today 17-year division, between the Palestinian leadership in the West Bank under the PA and in the Gaza Strip under Hamas. But on April 29th, just weeks before the scheduled election, the PA's president, Mahmoud Abbas, announced that the vote would be delayed indefinitely. And while it is widely thought that his actual motive was fear of a Hamas victory, the official reason for the postponement was the refusal by Israeli authorities to confirm that they would allow voting in East Jerusalem. Whether or not Abbas was cynically exploiting this question, the dilemma is a real one. Many East Jerusalem Palestinians are effectively denied the right to vote in either Palestinian or Israeli elections. Israeli authorities allowed the 2006 PA elections to proceed in East Jerusalem, but under harsh restrictions. Hamas was officially barred from campaigning. Several Hamas activists, including a candidate for the PA Legislative Council, were arrested on charges of illegal electioneering. And here we must examine the artifices of apartheid, as this system is now recognized as being by international human rights organizations, including Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch. Some East Jerusalem Palestinians are officially afforded the option of full Israeli citizenship, but Multiple bureaucratic barriers have been raised, leaving the large majority effectively disenfranchised. 
Reasons given for rejection of citizenship applications include insufficient knowledge of Hebrew, minor criminal offenses, even from many years ago, and dubious suspicion of links to individuals considered to be security threats. But the most common reason concerns a center of life, quote-unquote. Applicants must prove that their lives center in Israel and that they have no intention of relocating elsewhere, including to districts near East Jerusalem that are officially considered to be in the occupied West Bank. Even Palestinians who were born in Jerusalem and have lived all their lives there must present an array of documents, municipal tax receipts, utility bills, school transcripts, pay stubs, rental leases, etc. After Israel annexed East Jerusalem from Jordan in 1967, the Palestinians living there were given permanent residence status, which affords them the right to vote in local elections and receive national health insurance, but not to vote in national or Knesset elections or to be issued an Israeli passport. The requirements for citizenship application stem from Article 5 of Israel's citizenship law in 1968, a year after the annexation, Article 4A was amended to the law, allowing Palestinians who were born in East Jerusalem and have no other citizenship to obtain Israeli citizenship almost automatically, as long as they have been residing there for at least five years, have not been convicted of a serious crime, and apply between their 18th and 23rd birthdays. However, this provision was irrelevant for the first 20 years because East Jerusalem Palestinians were still officially citizens of Jordan. In 1988, Jordan stripped all Palestinians in the West Bank and East Jerusalem of citizenship. But even then, the Israeli Interior Ministry established no procedure for processing applications under Article 4A, and not one person was granted citizenship under the provision. Only in November 2020, following legal challenges, the Interior Ministry agreed to finally effectively implement Article 4A. Nearly all of Jerusalem's some quarter million Palestinians, about a third of the city's inhabitants, reside in the east, although more East Jerusalem Palestinians have been applying for Israeli citizenship in recent years, only some 10% have received it. Jewish settlers on the West Bank, in contrast, remain Israeli citizens and may vote in Israeli elections, despite residing outside Israel's legal borders. The West Bank's nearly half-million settlers, living in more than 250 settlements and outposts scattered among towns where some 3 million Palestinians reside, make up some 5% of Israel's officially recognized population.
population. Benjamin Netanyahu has groomed the settlers as a special support base with his promise to formally annex the entire West Bank in open defiance of international law, of course. Yet, at the same time, Israel will not guarantee the Palestinian Authority the right to carry out elections in East Jerusalem. So the Palestinians there are overwhelmingly effectively disenfranchised of the vote in either entity, Israel or the PA. Today, 57 years after the annexation of East Jerusalem, Israeli protestations that this state of affairs does not constitute apartheid because it is temporary certainly ring hollow. And this electoral question may tell us something about the prospects for an eventual just peace in historic Palestine, especially for those of us who believe in a single secular state from the river to the sea, as the controversial catchphrase goes. Because even if we can't get there immediately, some have put forth the proposition that such a model of bi-nationalism can begin in Jerusalem. I am going to return to those three little-remembered facts about UN General Assembly Resolution 181 of November 29, 1947, which created the State of Israel, quote-unquote. First, I am going to note again that it was only approved by the General Assembly, not the Security Council, which means that under the UN's own protocols, it is non-binding. Secondly, the borders of the Jewish state laid out in that resolution do not conform to Israel's actual borders today. Much of Israel's territory was taken by conquest in the War of 1948, at the end of which Israel was in control of 78% of historic Palestine, rather than the 56% allotted to it by the UN plan. Technically, Israel has no legal borders, at least not in those areas beyond what was apportioned by the UN. It has ceasefire lines, which have become de facto, but not de jure, borders. And finally, Jerusalem, under the terms of Resolution 181, was to be neither Israeli nor Arab nor divided. It was to be under international administration, a corpus separatum, as the Latin phrase of the resolution put it, a separate body where both sides, a phrase I hate using, could be free to live and have access to for worship but where neither would have exclusive political power. Now, it just amazes me how Israel and its supporters 
who always point to Resolution 181 as the source of the state's legitimacy, can just conveniently forget this reality. And a very big step in the wrong direction was taken in May 2018 when the Trump White House officially recognized Jerusalem as the capital of Israel and moved the U.S. Embassy there from Tel Aviv. An escalatory and at least de facto pro-annexationist move, which, alas, has not been reversed by the Biden administration. So Jerusalem could have been a model for coexistence, and maybe it still can be. Now, coexistence has sort of become a dirty word, and not only for the extremists on either side, anti-Zionist Israelis, as well as their Palestinian allies, call instead for co-resistance against the occupation and internal apartheid, and certainly calls for coexistence that do not challenge the oppressive status quo have no legitimacy. That said, this fantasy, which is nourished by the extremist and rejectionist elements on both sides, that the populace of the other side is going to cease to exist is a fantasy that can only be affected through genocide. And this mentality must be called out and forthrightly repudiated if there is ever going to be progress. I am going to invoke two historical figures here, one from either side. First, I again quote the important words of the Palestinian scholar and intellectual freedom fighter Edward Said, who wrote in his New York Times op-ed of January 10th, 1999, entitled The One State Solution, quote, I see no other way than to begin to speak now about sharing the land that has thrust us together, sharing it in a way that is truly democratic, with equal rights for each citizen. There can be no reconciliation unless both peoples, two communities of suffering, resolve that their existence is a secular fact and that it has to be dealt with as such. End quote. And on the other side, if you will, a lesser known figure, the American born rabbi and dissident Zionist of the 1930s and 40s, Judah Magnus, whose Ikud, or unification movement, called for a joint Jewish-Arab binational state in Palestine with equal rights for both peoples. In 1942, as tensions were rising in response to the rapidly escalating Jewish colonization of Palestine, in turn, a response to the untenable conditions for Jews in Europe at that time, 
Judah Magnus wrote, speaking on behalf of his Ikud movement, quote, Arab-Jewish cooperation has never been made the chief objective of major policy, either by the British mandatory government, by the Jewish agency, the British-recognized body representing the Jews, or by those representing the Arabs. We regard this as the great sin of omission that has been committed throughout all the years. This is the kernel of the problem. End quote. Now, I understand the reasons that Judah Magnus's vision was sidelined, and that of David Ben-Gurion, who even then was talking openly of transfer of the Palestinian Arabs, emerged hegemonic. The Zionist project was ultimately predicated on the theft and usurpation of Arab land. But nonetheless, the vision of Judah Magnus may have something to say about the way forward now. If we can still dare to dream of a better future for that part of the world in this dark and dismal hour, maybe the notion of Jerusalem as a corpus separatum and a binational city should be revisited. And after a generation or two of building trust and coexistence in a single city, this model can be expanded to the rest of historic Palestine, and a single bi-national state can be established. And then, after a generation or two of building trust and coexistence in a single secular state, Jews and Arabs can unite in a militant pan-Semitic social justice movement and have an anarchist revolution and overthrow that single secular state and finally achieve a no-state solution, a decentralized Middle East federation of autonomous communities and worker assemblies bound by principles of voluntary association without regard to ethnicity or religion. But before we start building castles in the sand, of course, we have to demand a ceasefire in Gaza. That is the urgent, immediate demand, which hopefully enough international pressure can bring about before Israel launches the full ground invasion of Rafah and really sends this horrific situation over the edge into the irrevocably much, much worse. Watch this spot. We will be following events closely, no matter which way they go. This has been Bill Weinberg with the Counter Vortex. Check us out online at countervortex.org. Please support us on Patreon. We need your support to keep going, just to the tune of a dollar or two a week. Make a big difference. Patreon.com slash countervortex. Join the Counter Vortex. Join the resistance. And rant on you next time.